Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Good morning, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing well, Barry. How are you? Good. That's very good. Well, I think I know why we convened this Zoom session today. We're going to discuss the last chapter in our mini, exciting mini-series on the dialectic of enlightenment by Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. This last chapter is about anti-Semitism. And as I think we'll discuss, in a way, um, the subtitle is very important. You were bringing this up before we started recording. Um, the subtitle is important because it suggests something about the relation of modern day World War II era, mm-hmm. fascist era, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism to the longer historical narrative that Adorno and Horkheimer have been presenting uh, about the dialectic of enlightenment and the ways in which enlightenment promises and the progressive ideals of the enlightenment get betrayed by (laughs) enlightenment thinkers, by the very process of enlightenment modernization. So um, fascism, obviously, and the anti-Semitic component of fascism is very telling terminal case, you know, terminal example, limit limit case example of the limits of enlightenment as a progressive ideology. So that's a, that's a mouthful, but um, in one way, this, the end of the story has been foretold. I guess this was our general feeling. Mm -hmm. In reading this chapter, not that it's uh, unnecessary or an addendum or a minor part of the uh, argument, is that by this point in the book, we have a very clear idea. They, Adorno and Horkheimer presented this very clear idea of where this particular element, how the present time uh, fits in, corroborates as a product of this lo- much longer historical process that they've outlined. So I guess, you know, um, because in a way, our summary, and, I get, and maybe I can gesture here to the form of this particular episode in the, in the series, because we kind of had this decision that um, we felt that our summary of their main points are kind of, it's, I think we can do this rather briefly, <clears throat> We thought this uh, this final episode in the series would also be a good place to, uh, for us to take stock after we talk about after we summarize, so to speak, the chapter. Um, we thought it would this would be a good opportunity. We would still have some room in the podcast, some time in the podcast, and this would be a, a good space, a good place to sort of give some final thoughts on the entire book of, of and the the larger argument. In the, of the dialectic of enlightenment, in particular, because this is the big takeaway or the big interest of the critical media studies podcast, we're concerned with what these arguments have to say about the present time, uh, and in particular about the ways in which media circulates meaning and produces meaning and produces subjects and produces societies, the cultural effects of media at the present moment. Right. So we're going to use. Uh, uh, arguments that were forged in the 1940s to uh, see how they apply or what ways they may apply to 2022. So we're going to try and do that in this episode. So 
the first part of our charge, as we've defined it, Michael, is that we want to uh, present a summary of what we think is the main argument in the limits of enlightenment. Their their elements of anti-Semitism chapter. Yeah, I think the you, elements of anti-Semitism chapter. I think you said it well. I'm going to say it slightly different. The the end here, the conclusion, this last chapter isn't. I think you called it a minor end. I don't think it's a minor end, but I do think that it's a, a predictable you know, that, end. That's very that's very disparaging. I'm I'm surprised at my unconscious hostility to the text. Minor end. I could well, be proje- I could be projecting, but my 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 <laughs> point my point I guess is that I, I I think that for me as I as as I look at this last chapter and 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 you know what I want to say about it, mm-hmm. um, I think that their conclusion here is. A predictable one. I don't think there's any real surprise with with their conclusions, but I do think that it is also tidy in the sense that you know there, there's there's one there's one brief section I want to look at that I think does the work that succinctly. Um, but to talk about it, it's going to require that we sort of revisit some of the stuff we talked about with the culture industry in terms of how culture works, which as you said, gets us back to, to media. So um, really, there, if you don't mind, there's just a couple things and they come early in this chapter um, in, let me see here. So in, in section two of this, so really like two pages in, the very first line, they say anti-Semitism. As Do you a want pop- a screen share for our uh, YouTube uh, audience? Because we want to do everything we can for the YouTube audience. We do, yes. Um, give me just a moment here and I'll, it's it's brief. It, there's There's not a whole lot and I'll, if you're listening, thank you, and I'll I'll try and speak clearly here. But here we go. Um, so it starts off. Section two starts off. Anti-Semitism as a popular movement has always been driven by the urge of which its instigators accuse the social democrats to make everyone the same, right? So I think if we just pause there for a second, what what they're really saying is the 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 roots of anti-Semitism are not terribly different or not at all different than one of the aims of the culture industry, right? which is homogenization. It's the sameness. Um, and so you go just a couple steps further, just this little bit that I have here in yellow. The Aryanization of Jewish property, which in any case primarily benefited those at the top, enriched the masses in the Third Reich hardly more than the wretched booty pillaged from Jewish quarters enriched the Cossacks. In other words, what's the benefit or the payoff for um you know, anti-Semitism. There's none. In terms of material benefit, nobody's profiting from this in any meaningful way. The although real... they, although their point in this passage is people think they are. Sure, but that's but I think right. that's that's sort of the point, right? The right. real benefit it brought was a half-understood ideology. Right. Right. That the demonstration of its economic futility heightened rather than moderated right, exactly. the attraction of the realist panacea points to its true nature the racialist it, the racialist right, oh, sorry sorry <laughs> my fault um <laughs> it it does not help human beings but assuages <clears throat> their urge to destroy right right okay so to me this is about identifying yourself in the mass about belonging and about needing a scapegoat 
to confirm your place. That's what the, this is about class as much as it's about anti-Semitism. This is about being a part of the, you know, to use uh, uh, Raymond Williams here, right? This is about being a part of the dominant as, about, as opposed to being a part of, of the fringe. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's my real, that to me was the thing because you I see this so much in, in the world today, you know, half understood ideologies, people walking around, um, dropping terms that clearly enable them with one particular group or another um, without fully comprehending what it is they're saying or why it is that they're saying these things. Uh, can we linger here for a moment? And you allow me an astute, um, uh, an astute moment where I savor the fierce eloquence of Adorno and Horkheimer, because yeah. especially the sentence uh, that you marked, the real benefit it brought was, and you've already underscored the importance of this phrase. It's, it really strikes me when you were reading it, how brilliant this phrase is. Uh, and it occasioned a lot of thoughts. The real benefit it brought was a half understood ideology. Um, the brilliance of this insight, I think, consists in exactly what you're saying. Nothing is more effective paradoxically and nothing is more dangerous, not an ideology than a half understood ideology. Yes. Because that means as Adorno and Horkheimer go on, go on to make the point in the rest of this passage that you, uh, that you're emphasizing, you were noted, uh, Michael, they go on to make the case that because this ideology of anti-Semitism, it's not, it's, it's precisely because it's half understood that it's so damaging. It is, Half, under, half understood premises mean they can be uh, motivations for action. Mm-hmm. But, but also, go ahead. Oh, well, yeah. Well, just, I was just going to say they're motivations for action. But then uh, the pleasure that one gets in destruction becomes, you know, its own reward. And in a sense, that can happen. Despite, you know, uh, regardless of the ideology, there is some, I mean, I think this is the frightening thing that Adorno and Horkheimer realize about anti-Semitism and any half understood ideology, that um, the ideology, the actions are compensation for frustrated existence. People, according in their reading, mm-hmm. that's well people said, have frustrated, people have frustrated lives. And if you give people reason, you know, not reasons, but sufficient reason. If you sanction it. If you sanction it. Thank you. If you use reason as a sanction or a certain kind of action, but really uh, you're sanctioning violent behavior. And the problem with violent behavior is that it becomes its own rationale very quickly because there's a pleasure in destruction. But not only that, it clearly puts you in the right. Absolutely. You know, so like I, I, if if, if we go down to just finish the paragraph, the actual advantage enjoyed by the racialist comrade is that his rage will be sanctioned by the collective. Oh, they use that verb later. Yeah, you're right. The less he, but this is, this is to your point though, the less he gains in any other way, the more obstinately against better knowledge, he clings to the movement. Anti-Semitism has proved immune to the charge of inadequate profitability for the common people, it is a luxury. And there so this, right. there is your, your, your rage becomes righteousness and right. the ability to express your rage is your 
payoff. That is I, your gain. I think the psychological, I mean, you know, oh, I, th- I think eventually we're going to say, um, judging from our pre-discussions, we're going to say that this chapter sort of confirms or, or is an example of Adorno and Horkheimer using uh, maybe predominantly recur- re- referring back to the uh, Marxist paradigm, a Marxist analysis mm-hmm. to the, the premises or, or methodologies of Marxist analysis. Nonetheless, there's a lot of Freud in this, you know, there's a lot of psychology in these anti-Semitism chapter, especially in these passages that we've been earmarking. This idea that the, you know, half un- another term from Freud that I think, I think it's hovering over ideology is a term that I think it's pretty clear that Adorno and Horkheimer are taking from Marx. But when they say half understood ideology, when they delineate and, and sort of emphasize the, the powerful effects that a half understood ideology might have, the political effects it might have, I think here's where we see uh, and it's obviously not the first time we see it in the dialectic of alignment, but here we see the presence of Freud. Mm-hmm. Here we see, I, because I think another term, I, I think they're using, they don't mention the Freudian unconscious uh, as a motivating factor in human psychology, but I think that's kind of what they're playing with and presuming. That's what's submerged, so to speak, in this in this argument. Mm-hmm. No, so there's Freud here. There's Freud here as well as Marx. Sure. I was going, uh, I, I think I sort of missed the window on this a little bit, but I was going to tie this back to the culture industry in terms of the sanctioning and how that's yeah, done. And this this idea, well, I don't think it's a long discussion, but this idea that, you know, what what we see in the media in order to be effective needs to be a version of myself that is equally plausible, right? So I have to be able to see myself in this. And through that sort of psychological positioning, you create an element of control, which is profound, right? Um, And so this idea of media being the same, movies, radio being uh, the same and, you know, designed to a specific end is, is really, I, I think how this is, this is done. So this, to me, um, again, speaks, this is why I found this so interesting and terrifying simultaneously is because I see so many parallels to this, to now, um, mm-hmm. that are, that are frightening. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was, that was, that was, that was my, 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 the thing that I, I had a, an idea to connect it earlier, but I just wanted to come back and say that, that, that social sanctioning, I think is, is what to me connected this to, uh, the culture industry most clearly. Well, maybe we can transition from this since you brought up media. Maybe, we, maybe this is the point. Uh, if you allow me, I wanted to bring in another text to sort of round off this discussion. Here it is. I'll show it to our YouTube viewers. Late Marxism. Uh, Late Marxism by Frederick Jameson. He makes a point about this chapter that I think, um, I think, I think this tallies. We agree with the great Frederick Jameson. So we're being highly original in this. That um, I think we collectively, Michael and I collectively felt that um, in their final, in this final chapter, 
in this final chapter, Adorno and Horkheimer um, maybe make make clear, uh, or they are um, most overtly returning to a Marxist Marxist mode of analysis in order to explain and interpret modern anti-Semitism, in that they are they're basically explaining anti-Semitism as a psychological phenomenon. Mm -hmm. They're basically relating that to inequities and inequalities and failed promises of capitalism, failed promises or pressures in the social system. So in the sense that this is a Marxist analysis or um, I'll read a Jameson quote. But before I do, let me let me uh, let me tag something for the future. in what you just said, Michael, very helpfully in talking about social sanction and the ways in which media um, helps sanction certain kinds of behavior, including anti-Semitism, then and now. Uh, I think that's what we're going to return to in the last portion of this episode, um, the ways in which the picture of media, and particularly the, the vision of media as a culture industry in the dialectic of enlightenment, the ways in which that pertains or doesn't pertain to our current media landscape. But just one more, I'm going to circle back uh, one last time to the anti-Semitism chapter. So I think both Michael and I agreed that there was a strong pronounced social emphasis in this particular chapter, by which which I mean that anti-Semitism is a psychological phenomenon they certainly treat it as, as was evident in the passage we, that Michael just read. Adorno and Horkheimer realize there's psych- important psychological dynamics going on and being expressed in antisocial and anti-Semitic prejudice. But they, in the, in the last mode of analysis, in the last instance, they feel this psychology is very much a social psychology. It's the product of pent-up feeling and aggression and frustration at inequities, the everyday injustice of living in a capitalist social order. That's why we think um, that's why we think this chapter is where they return to Marxism, um, maybe most explicitly. Uh, and Frederick Jameson makes a similar point about the, the work of this chapter in the larger project of the dialectic and alignment. And I guess we just want to emphasize um, that that might be a way of interpreting uh, what's going on in this chapter in, in relation to the rest of the book. So, even in the chapter of Dialectic of Enlightenment, officially consecrated to anti-Semitism, Jameson writes in late, late Marxism. Marxism, even in the chapter of Dialectic of Enlightenment, officially consecrated to anti-Semitism, this phenomenon, is not as it is for liberalism. Let me uh, insert here. It's not as it is for liberalism. Uh, And Jameson is implying that a Marxist analysis, he's trying to differentiate Adorno and Horkheimer's Marxist analysis from a liberal analysis Mm -hmm. of society. So even in the chapter of DOE, officially consecrated to anti-Semitism, The phenomenon is not, as it would be for liberalism, a mere aberrant empirical matter, which may be studied in isolation from late capitalism generally, but is in its function and also in its significance as a psychic symptom. So even 
this psychological element of anti-Semitism. They want, Jameson says, Dorno and Horkheimer even want to bring down, bring a discussion of the psychology of anti-Semitism back to an analysis of, resume reading Jameson, the social totality itself. So in other words, this is their most marks. And this is worth remarking because we've seen a lot, a lot of Freud mm-hmm. in the dialectic of alignment, even though there is an entire chapter highly critical of Nietzsche's um, attack on morality. There is a strong sense in many of the passages, is that many of the passages, the passages on uh, Odysseus and also the passage on Kant really reads like, you know, outtakes from Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. So there's a lot of Nietzsche in here, even though Nietzsche is an object of Adorno and Horkheimer's critique. Nonetheless, in the anti-Semitism chapter, as Jameson notes, and I think we, we are agreeing with Jameson, there's a kind of return, there's a strong return to, their, to a Marxist analysis that says that even a social symptom, even a psychological symptom like anti-Semitism has to be explained by the mode of production. Now that maybe right there is a segue to media, to our mm-hmm. discussion of media, because um, it's not just like returning to society. It's not just as in terms of a Marxist analysis of anti-Semitism, uh, Dorno and Heik Horkheimer want us to be aware of society. What makes that Marxist is that they want us to attend to modes of production. And if we talk about modes of production, I think we're right back into this idea that you already talked about, Michael, that the mode of production right now for everything, including art, is the culture industry. Right. And this, so that maybe now, that maybe that's a segue to, uh, if you want to take it from here or just begin our discussion, maybe that's a, a segue to our takeaways, uh, to our to our discussion of what we think um might be relevant to something in this text that we haven't talked about, but that we think might be relevant to contemporary media studies. Which is, I, I'm assuming we're talking here about radio now. Well, we're talking about the culture industry. Right. And so, yeah, we're talking about radio. Well, I, 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 I mean why, radio because... Why would radio... You want me to read why radio might be a problem? No, I think it's it, it's let, let's let's chat about this before because there's a, yeah, there's a section see. in the culture industry chapter which brings okay. us back to this. But you know, if we're talking about mm-hmm. the Marxist argument and the and the production, the problem mm-hmm. that radio presents that is different or unique compared to um, you know film is that it's a non commodified entity right it presents itself as in other words as a public service right it's free it's it is a public good and so the the question of you know radio as a commodity is um a different discussion than what we did with film and so do you want to do you want to jump into this uh, I can just to sort of. Um, I have I have the section pulled up. If you want to about we the take, radio, yeah. Well, let me say just one quick thing, and then let's go to the passage. I, I don't want to. I don't want to belabor the point, but just sort of to make sure that we're all clear mm-hmm. about uh, why radio would be a um, 
would be a kind of stepping point to thinking about the culture industry, but also current manifestations of um, the culture industry, if they exist today. And it, this, again, is uh, taking off from a point Frederick Jameson makes. He argues that radio is something that Adorno and Horkheimer, so the culture industry chapter that we discussed, last, was it last time? I guess yes. it was. Yes. Um, the culture industry chapter largely focuses on Hollywood, mm -hmm. but there are there's a long there is a discussion of radio and television as well. And Jameson says, and I think we agree with this. I guess this is the this is one of the things that you and I should maybe talk about um, as we go along here. Um, Jameson is making an argument. There's an argument here, and it, maybe Jameson is wrong, but he feels that. There's a kind of tension in the culture industry argument. And we didn't talk about this in the culture industry episode. Um, Jameson feels there's a tension in this argument because with Hollywood, it makes sense to talk about Hollywood movies as a commodity because mm -hmm. you're paying for it no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and even if it's cheap, even if it's a relatively cheap commodity, it's very obviously a commodity. And you have celebrity status that is being reined in and produced for the sake of the commodity system. Mm -hmm. Movies have to make a profit. So it's obvious. So the claim that, well, Hollywood is media and media is obviously uh, constructed around industrial modes of production. And so therefore Hollywood is a culture industry. That's a kind of airtight, that's a tight argument, but Jameson says radio presents a problem with that because ineluctably, no matter what, because of the nature of the technology, and maybe the internet is a parallel here, uh, or maybe not, with radio, you, uh, I mean, I'll use the BBC, I think I did this when we were talking about it before, Michael, I used the BBC as an example. The BBC was defined by law. It, you know, it's different from America, right? Mm -hmm. BBC was defined by law as a state, as a, a state organized broadcasting channel. Because, and why was the state running it? Because it was assumed that radio, because everyone had free access to it, was a service. And therefore, if it was a service, it should be under the auspices of the state. So Jameson says, well, this presents an argument here. Yeah, I mean, radio has a problematic place in this argument because radio, it's not obvious that radio is a commodity um, because there is at least a, a discourse around radio and something about the nature of the technological medium itself that suggests that it's harder to commodify. So I guess that's the subject under discussion. And yeah. maybe that's, does that set up the quote? Maybe it can... does. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a, a second insight into this that I want to have sitting sure. on the back burner here, because okay. one of, one of the, the so we, we've, Horkheimer and Adorno discussed how film works in the culture industry. And one of the things that you had just mentioned there, it, so, so to just revisit it briefly, the argument is that the films that are produced and the the product that we consume it exists as a certain banality a certain sameness that requires 
that, that ends with a that, that has a leveling effect, right? There's just there's not a whole lot. It, it is it's it, what's their term for it? It's common art. I forget what the term they use for it, but it's a, a simple art. Maybe I forget what the I'm forgetting their term, but I mean the other terms that come to mind are standardized. Yeah, but 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 production the, has to be standardized, regularized, in, and in therefore the, not predictable. And in therefore the predictable in the name of economic concerns. Right. Right. What's interesting about the so you have uh, Hollywood and Hollywood's functioning as a result of certain economic necessities. Yeah. What's interesting in the argument that Adorno and Horkheimer put forth is that it drips of McLuhan ahead of McLuhan, where you have radio functioning not according to economic concerns because it's not an economic commodity hmm. but it's it is it, it functions more along the lines of excuse me i didn't want to use that word it works more along the lines of function in other words you know if you go back to McLuhan's argument about the medium is the message right the medium itself becomes the thing that becomes the thing we need to focus on ignore hmm the content it's the container and i think that you have an interesting sort of distinction between the economic implications of mm -hmm. cinema mm -hmm. and the form considerations of radio mm -hmm. that so let me let me share the screen i i think this is the you perfectly teed up the uh, passage we wanted to look at well let's 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 take let's a peek here so let's for for those of you watching here you go for those of you listening uh here you go we're gonna read in a really exciting <clears throat> manner right it's gonna I'm be dramatic down. it's my radio voice here we go so in america it and their their radio their radio in america it levies no duty from the public no charge so they're acknowledging that just to break in, it's they're, free. they're acknowledging what Jameson said might be a trouble point for them. They're acknowledging the free aspect, the public yeah, service. It is, it is not, it is, there are no economic concerns right. here, right? right? It thereby takes on the deceptive form of a disinterested, impartial authority, which fits fascism like a glove. Ouch. Ouch. In fascism. Ouch. But see, this is this is the this is this is the wave of McLuhan coming at you. In fascism, radio becomes the universal mouthpiece of the Fuhrer. In the loudspeakers on the street, his voice merges with the howl of sirens proclaiming panic, from which modern propaganda is hard to distinguish in any case. L let's stop. We got to stop there for an aesthetic moment. This brilliant reader in this PDF was. Did you do this, or is this in the PDF already? Who's called Sirens in Red? Was that you? That was me. You're a brilliant reader. Thank, thank you. You have to stop a moment to, to congratulate ourselves. Um, <laughs> because uh, what, you know, you're a good close reader. What should we think about here? I mean, this is really kind of brilliant as a formal technique. What 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 is the, where have we seen Sirens before? Oh, look at you. This is Odysseus all over again. This is Odysseus over. So this is a way in which... But this, that's right. I mean, this is the exciting thing about the book. I think this is not a real digression because this is kind of this is something we should talk about in a in a, uh, in a summation episode, isn't it? Because uh, they really constructed this as a narrative. 
Mm-hmm. Right, the dialectic of enlightenment is a historical narrative. That's what I was thinking of when I was comparing it to genealogy and morals. It's a sort of a Nietzsche's genealogy and morals. It's a para, very critical alternative view of history. And so, um, and but it's also a narrative. Dialectic of enlightenment, they constructed Adorno and Horkheimer constructed as a narrative. So now the sirens, silenced by Odysseus and in Homer, mm-hmm. are um, they reappear in the radio broadcast of the Fuhrer. Right. That's perfectly. the end of the story. That's right. the end of the story. Shall I continue? Okay, I just want to say how how brilliant that was. And so there you okay, go. I, there we go. I never knew uh, circling with a red pen could- Oh, take, it gets me very excited. Yeah. There you go. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> the nationalist social, excuse me, the national socialists knew that broadcasting gave their case stature as the printing press did to the Reformation. The Fuhrer's metaphysical charisma, invented by the sociology of religion, turned out finally to be merely the omnipresence of his radio address, which demonically parodies that of the divine spirit. The gigantic fact that the speech penetrates everywhere replaces its content as the benevolent act of the Tuscany broadcast supplants its content. Do we have drinking games for the Critical Media Studies podcast? Uh, We should always be drinking every time. uh, Oh, yeah, we don't. I'm assuming you listening do, and (laughs) we'll take a moment free to gather yourself. Take a drink. Maybe we should have sound effects. Every time we mention either McLuhan or Taylor Swift, like we did in our last episode, there should be a drinking game. But- Everything about this, those last two sentences you read, uh, our listeners who have struggled with us through McLuhan, who have labored with us through McLuhan, you should, you know, you should be, we need to invoke them, right? Mm. The fact that the speech as a form penetrates everywhere, replaces his content. This is precisely McLuhan's argument about how media forms work right. to replace content. It's exactly the argument. Uh, what do you think? I think I mean, I'll just say that I think it's brilliant. Maybe you'll have something more substantive to say um, if I point out, if I return to that prior sentence where they suggest that the, the metaphysical charisma, the, the the charisma that we ascribe to Adolf Hitler himself, it turns out also to be a function, to use your word, of media. Mm-hmm. It turns out to be merely the omnipresence of his radio addresses. Now, I'm going to try to gloss that. I think that's a brilliant observation. Let me see if I can gloss it and you tell me whether you you agree with my gloss. I think what they're saying is Hitler has no intrinsic divine uh, properties. Okay. An easy proposition to make. Mm -hmm. Why do people, even intelligent people think, oh no, he must be horribly, tremendously, powerfully charismatic, because look at the the effects of his speeches. Uh, And to that comment, I think Adorno and Horkheimer in that sentence are saying nonsense. That you are, to say that, to say that Hitler has an essence is to misunderstand the power of media. That it's merely the omnipresence of the radio voice of Hitler that gives him the ersatz charisma or appeal that generates 
activity and a response in the masses. Well, I that's think my gloss of it. I, but I think that's right. And I think that we see that today. You know, you if you can be at the forefront of the form, then your 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 fame is is derived from your visibility or from your yeah, now you I mean, even though we're talking about radio, I'll still use visibility as the term here, right? Like you're because he is the focus of this, because he is the voice you hear. He is he is what's in the container. So we 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 take that to be you know, this, I think again, this was sort of the thing that that people who read McLuhan struggle with. It's not the content, it's the container, right? Yeah. If exactly. you put if you put exactly. Hitler in the container, you're going to focus on Hitler missing the fact that it's the container it's itself. The container. That's so the I, message. Yeah. I, and I, so I think that's it. And I think we see that, you know, I mean, this, the, this is social media. This is, this is, I mean, I'm not trying to compare social media people to Hitler. Don't misunderstand. That's not the, you are, I, you I, are. I didn't, I didn't no, know such are. thing, but, um, but I, I think that's the argument is that, that, you know, his, what is it? Um, uh, the Führer's metaphysics invented by the sociologist turned out finally to be merely the omnipresence of his radio address, right? What we think of as charisma is just his, his ubiquity. His omnipresence, ubiquity. Yes. Yes. Wonderfully said. Uh, let's get out of the screen share. And I have a question for you because I think we're at the close. All right. Yeah. I'm going to make a comment and I'm going to throw it to you. And maybe I'll have a comment in response, but I think we're we're kind of drawn to a close of our discussion. Because um, I think now we did the second part of what I promised at the beginning, that we're thinking about um, an aspect of the culture industry argument that we didn't discuss in the culture, in our episode on the culture industry chapter, but that might be a parallel to, that might be worth considering in order to make sense of the current situation, the current media environment or media ecology. So, so let's return to the quote just briefly. What uh, we were detecting McLuhan in that quote. So, so what's what's the takeaway from that, or what's the what's the larger meaning of that? Uh, we think that Jameson's right. The radio. I'm going to try to summarize some points, and then you fill in or take, you know disagree or whatever. So Jameson makes the argument that radio has a problematic role within the culture industry argument because of its free nature, its public service, association with public service or state apparatus. And looking at that passage, we think maybe Jameson, you know, has a point, but maybe only a point in the sense that that passage suggests that Adorno and Horkheimer before McLuhan, have a very easy, um, uh, you know, can can definitely sort of answer the objection that, well, radio isn't a commodity. And they seem to answer that objection by pointing out the fact that the media is the message, that the, the container of media has leveling, standardizing, dominating, effects so that even though it may not even though radio may not appear to be a commodity product or subject to the same mode of production that hollywood film is it has the same effects of as you we've been talking about throughout this episode 
of limiting and constructing and you know inhibiting human consciousness and perpetuating structures of the domination and um, reproducing a kind of cultural leveling, a cultural sameness. So, I mean, does that sound like a fair gloss? And then if you think it is a fair gloss, then I have a question. No, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'd like to hear your question before I say. Okay. Well, that I think is what that passage, I mean, that's why we were looking at that passage, because it seems like they realize that radio is something different, but I think they seem to be say, uh, implying fairly clearly that radio has effects that are not unlike the rest of the culture industry. So I think that's how they address that argument and how, and I think they, they, they convince me and persuade me in that fact. Okay. So my question for you is this, I think one of the reasons why we were fascinated with the place of radio in the culture industry chapter is because in a way, many of the rationales for the internet or many of the claims made for radio in the twenties and thirties and forties and beyond actually, um, and, and for were, were and are made for the internet, that the main thing that you need to do to liberate people is just to give them access to the internet. Insofar as you do that, that is progress because the internet is a service. It's a necessity even. Um, and just increasing its circulation. Now that passage that you read talks about the dangers of media ubiquity or omnipresence. Ubiquity was your word, omnipresence their word. Um, so the internet, I mean, that seems to be how we justify or legitimate the internet or sanction to use your other word, the internet now. We say, listen, the internet, the problem with the internet is we don't get enough of it or enough people don't get enough of it. So is that the parallel or no? Well, I, or no, maybe let me answer this. I'm going to try and take as straight a line through this as possible because I don't want to wander around the bushes too much here. But I, I think it's important that if we're going to try and draw this parallel between the Internet and radio, I think it's important to sort of couch the way that radio functions for Adorno and Horkheimer in terms of their larger argument in the book, which is about the Enlightenment. Right. So if you think about the power, so radio is not a commodity, right? That's the problem. It's, it's, it's a free public good. Okay. But in terms of the enlightenment, it's a tool, but it's more than that. It's a scientific tool. Okay. And what that scientific tool does, and this is where I think you can make the connection to the internet is that it connects us to something authentic and true. It connects us to the Fuhrer himself, right? We get to hear this word. You're laughing. Give me a moment, right? <laughs> so just, I'm just thinking about our the comments on, on YouTube that we'll be getting. <laughs> go ahead, please. So I don't think it needs to go there. If it does, it does, right? <laughs> but the idea is that there's an auth well, Let me rephrase this then. There's an authenticity. There's an authenticity that gives us access to Right. And so in the case of the Horkheimer Adorno, it's the Fuhrer or the Sirens or whatever, whomever. We'll say the Sirens. But it is a tool right. that is scientific in nature 
and has all of the trappings of truth and authenticity sure. and legitimacy, right? This creates that sanctioning, excuse me, that sanctioning, which leads us to fascism, okay? If you look at the internet, in a way, I feel like it operates under the same set of enlightened, and I use that with the little air quotes, um, premises, right? That this is about access and that access equals progress because access to what? Well, we assume access to the authentic, access to the valuable, access to something that is somehow in some mythical way different than the culture industry and different than the leveling properties of the culture industry, which right, will take us right. to this wasteland. And so I, I think that the are they're comparable, I think, certainly in the sense that you have to look at them as tools and as mediums where the content is perhaps less significant than the tool itself. And then the question becomes, well, in That's what great. service is in what service is this tool being levied? That's so, a great point. That's that's where I would that's where I would get off with that. I think there's certainly comparisons, but I think that the comparison has to be couched in the conception of, you know, this idealism behind both technologies. Um, would you agree that we kind of need? I mean, this is, seems to be a really forceful argument that we need McLuhan to. I mean, I, yeah, I was, I was laughing because, you know, I always force, you know, as listeners or watchers of the critical media studies podcast knows, I'm always um, pushing Michael to acknowledge the greatness and omnipresence and ubiquity of McLuhan. And he's always pushing Taylor Swift on me and, you know, and he obliges and I oblige. Um, but, you know, you're, I, I loved your answer to to I loved your comment there, and I'm wondering. Um, you're making me think that McLuhan really is genuinely helpful, and that he gives us a bridge. He gives us a way to connect their analysis of radio as a media form with the ways in which the internet as media form functions today. I mean, McLuhan helps us see maybe you know make a bridge from what their their analysis to maybe a more contemporary analysis i think that yes i think that especially the way that this passage that we talked about today is written um i i think that's a nod that you know I, i'm not i'm not gonna say that McLuhan is dead right all the time and that this is how we have to see things i think that that's that that's, a that's very just limiting me. Yeah, that, yeah and that's me. fine. That's fine. I'm, I don't want to be, you know, to be to be trampling on your daydreams here or your dreams. But but I think that in this regard, it's highly useful because it gives it, it provides Adorno and Horkheimer the answer that they need yeah. to say, well, here's how here's what we do with radio, you know, or here's how we understand radio functioning as a part of the culture industry. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think that it certainly is useful in trying to contextualize or make an argument for how we can see the, you know, the, 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 the idealist, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, 
the 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 dream of the internet right like what what the internet is supposed well put. to be well put well put very well put uh lovely answer i think we're in our final moments but i think we're i think we reach a close but let's do something special for the holidays michael i'm going to ask you an, a question that you're not prepared for that's most short questions. Answer. That's most short questions. Answer. And okay. I'm going to try to answer it too. It's, it's, I'm going to try to answer my own question. All right, what you but, but this is just in the spirit of the holidays. It's also in the spirit of, uh, um, you know, our leave taking with this book that we've lingered on for a while now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in the uh, not so much a co- not so much a takeaway, but uh, just sort of a sum- summation point. So along those lines, I'm going to ask you. Uh, a question and we may have to stop tape and then begin again you, but i think no we have no let's the full speed ahead what keep do you have rolling. keep it what rolling. do you have okay now that we've read this book who do you think needs to read this book to whom would you recommend this book to or maybe a better way of putting it. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my question better. I'm going to put my question better. What do you think are arguments that our listener, that, you know, from this book, what are the arguments that you read that we've talked about that you think that reader should keep in mind as they go forward? Like, what are the important, what's the, I am asking about the take. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I, but I'm so, asking it in the most exalted way. I think I, like, and okay, I think. you haven't read this book. Why is it a problem that you haven't read this book? What am I, what am I going to tell you? Okay, unless you read this book, you, you're not going to understand X. So I think, well, okay, so I'm going to give you a big answer. Well, this. that's what I'm asking for. I right? think if if you don't, unless you read this book. It is unlikely, I'm not going to say you won't, it is unlikely that you will see the world in the way that this book asks you to see it. And that's a non-answer. So to circle back, what I took from this book was just a, a series of perspectives about the world as a series of cause and effects built on certain assumptions that we swallow blindly as good, right? The first thing, this was a hard read for me. Um, and and so when you said, when you said polymath, right? And when you said, so who who needs to read this book? Yeah, I I don't know. Right. But who needs to be talking and thinking about the books, about the book's contents? I think all of us. And, and the reason for it is, you know, we, we take, we, we live in an era of big data where we take, you know, and I, I, have math, I have friends in mathematics who will probably find me and hurt me for this, but who take numbers and statistics and science as an absolute truth. This to me is the argument for liberal studies. This to me is the argument for long form discussion. This for me is the argument about a slow considered response as opposed to check the box, move on. This is this is an incredibly important book. Um, and it's incredibly challenging and incredibly dense and incredibly confusing book. But I think that the, the, the value in this is to look long and hard at a lot of our 
preconceived truths about the value of efficiency and the value of you know absolute certainty and the real dangers in basing your worldview upon those things because quite frankly i know they exist but i do i am not of the opinion that they are always the best way through and in a in a world driven by capitalism and consum- you know consumption these are anathema to to to, to the way w- the world is lived there, there's my not short and I don't know how incredibly coherent answer. How, what, what's, what's yours? Uh, I think uh, your answer may not have been short, but it was incredibly coherent and incredibly powerful and I and eloquent. And I have little to add to it. In fact, I, I think I have nothing to add to it, except I'll just say one last sentence. And it's, and you already implied what I'm going to say. My quick takeaway, and I'll just keep, I like your longer takeaway. And I would like it to be our our capstone statement. So I'll just add, uh, I'll just underscore some a point you made. For someone familiar, I was about to say, for someone familiar with Western culture history, this is a real eye opener because it offers an important alternative perspective on Western intellectual history. But I would go further than that, as you do, and I would say that just by virtue of living in a capitalist, consumerist, technology-driven, scientific society that assumes that the next product you buy, the next technological device or technological advance necessarily constitutes progress and should be esteemed and valued simply because it is the most timely fashionable, uh, technological, you know, uh, advanced thing going that even if you live in this world, you're regardless of what you know about it, Western history, you're going to be inundated, uh, and shaped, uh, by and determined. I think your notion of reason and the, the normal, the normative everyday, your notion of the everyday life is going to be shaped. And, and I think limited by this perspective, just by virtue of being of being alive and a thinking being in, you know, in, on this date, 12-9-2022. So since we're all living in this current society and we are imbued with this worldview, like it or not, I think this book is an important corrective. Yeah. I- it presents a powerful alternative. But I guess, you know, to link up with another thing you said, it has to be challenging and it is challenging and it has to be a challenging read. And, you know, the, the, the reason why this might be uh, a, a daunting task is that it is a challenging read. It requires you to know a lot. You're going to have to read this in concert with other books mm-hmm. in order to make sense of it. Um, so, you know, there's the challenge of the book, but is it worthwhile? I think it is for all the reasons you said. Barry, thank you. Um, I've enjoyed it. And, um, you know, uh, again, th- this 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 project came as a result of a uh, listener suggestion. So if there is stuff you'd like us to discuss, um, stuff you'd like to discuss, uh, by all means, reach out and let us know. Um, we're, we're open to suggestion. This was a good one. And I think it was time well spent. I hope you did, too. Can't say it better. Thank all you, right. Michael, for everything. All right, Barry. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. 
To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.